All right, so we're going to study first the plan of salvation as a big section and then get into the provision of salvation and see where we're at with time. There's a lot to cover. So starting off with the plan of salvation, the plan of salvation. The man's salvation is no accident. This was planned. There's a plan that's being worked out. And that plan goes all the way back to eternity past. This plan has existed in the mind of God forever, but in history... God has been progressively unfolding and revealing this plan to us. See that in scripture. And we want to think about how salvation has come about as a result of God's plan. Salvation is not our doing. It's God's doing. And we want to think about how he has planned what he's going to do. Even as it goes to back to eternity past, there's two big subjects that come to mind. And that would be grace and election. We're going to talk about those two here under the plan of salvation, grace, and then what scripture refers to as election. So first, grace. Grace has been called the fountainhead of all redemptive blessings. Everything that has to do with salvation is some way tied back to grace. And from beginning to end, grace is the canvas on which the mural of salvation is painted. Spurgeon called grace a golden thread, quote, moving through the whole of the Christian's history from his election before all worlds, even to his admission to the heavenly rest, end quote. Salvation is all about, one way or another, God's grace. Grace can generically be defined as God's unmerited, undeserved favor. It can be viewed as giving someone what they don't deserve or what they haven't earned. But God's grace goes a little bit further than that. It's also not uniform. There's different types of grace that God Gives and does not show the same grace to all people. Not all receive the same type of gift. And God is not obliged to give anyone anything. Let's keep that in mind. We can make a, a basic distinction in God's grace between a common grace and a special grace. So first, under grace, you can talk about common grace. Remember that there's a distinction between general revelation and special revelation. There's likewise a distinction to be made between a common grace and special grace. Common grace may be defined as is God's general love for all of his creation. This is the form of grace that goes out to all people without exception. Believers and unbelievers receive this goodness from God. This grace consists of God's general care, concern, and provision for all of its creatures. When it comes to this common grace, there's a few main expressions of it. This common grace sustains life. Like Psalm 104, 14 says that God causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the labor of man, that he might bring forth food from the earth. God has given life to man on earth and he enables life to be sustained. Matthew 5, 44 and 45, Christ told us to love our enemies. And he said, That God does the same. God sends uh, sunshine and rain on the good and the evil. That in a sense, God shows love even to the wicked. He enables them to live on the earth. The wicked deserve nothing from God. But by his common grace, he enables them to have abundant food, wealth, children, many blessings they can even derive happiness from in this life. We are every breath to God's common grace Acts 17.28 attests that in God we live and move and exist. 
And common grace just enables man to live and enjoy what he can in this life. Common grace also restrains the power of sin. Keep things from being as bad as they could be. So this before the flood, Genesis 6-3, it was God's grace working through the Holy Spirit that restrained sin for 120 years. After the flood, Genesis 9-6, God essentially instituted a human government to put a check on the widespread evil and really murder that was taking place before the flood. That's affirmed in Romans 13, 1 through 6, the role of government, where God has delegated some of his authority to human governments for the purpose of restraining evil and punishing evildoers. That is a form of God's common grace to mankind, to keep things from getting as bad as they could be here below. And there's more we could say about God's common grace, if we had more time, but anything really good or noble or lovely from uh, in human culture can be tied back to God's common grace. Let's transition and talk about special grace, though. And God's special grace is different than his common grace. Common grace is given to all people without exception. Special grace is only given to the elect. Also, common grace does not produce salvation in anyone, but special grace produces salvation in everyone who receives it. It is a saving grace. Special grace is sometimes referred to as sovereign grace because it sovereignly changes all who receive it. You may have heard it sometimes referred to as irresistible grace. A better term might be effectual grace. The term irresistible grace can be misleading because it might imply that God overrides our wills as if he's, he's bringing us kicking and screaming into his kingdom. Like we just can't resist, but that's not quite the case. God doesn't force or coerce anyone to repent and believe. And as the Bible says many times, people have to believe in Jesus to be saved. They must make a decision of their own will. But how does God ensure people will believe in Jesus of their own will without forcing or coercing them? Well, this special grace works to change man's very nature. You've got to go back to our study of, of man and sin. We learn man has two problems. First, he won't believe in Christ because he doesn't want to. And second, he won't believe in Christ because he can't. There's two very big problems. He has a nature problem and a will problem, a problem of will and ability. Both are lacking. He's spiritually dead. But through special grace, God works to, to change this. He brings the dead to life. That God changes or regenerates the sinner's nature, giving him a new heart. God makes a sinner a new creature. That restores a person's ability to repent and believe. This new nature, being a work of the Holy Spirit, is inclined to God. You know, a sinner's ears are open to the truth. Their minds are are unblinded to see the glory of God in Christ. And at that point, they, they find Christ irresistible. They go to him of their own accord. When God makes someone new like this and then calls them to himself, he works effectually such that all who are made alive will respond to him and they will come to him. Just like a baby that is born alive will immediately draw near to its mother to nurse. It's just part of, its, part of nature of that which is living. And likewise, when someone comes to new life through God's work, and by nature they're drawn to God, they will go to him. They will uh, believe. 
And so this is why this special grace is often referred to as effectual grace. It's effective. It always brings about its design. And its design is to save. When God gives it, sends it, the intention is to, to save. And it always accomplishes that uh, goal. It imparts new life to the sinner. And this new life both enables and guarantees that a person will turn to Christ, believe, and be saved. To, to further appreciate this special, effectual grace, let me give you seven characteristics of it. We can think on it a little bit more here. This special grace is undeserved. I mean, it's called grace after all. That's kind of part of the definition of grace. It's undeserved. It's unmerited. No sinner earns or merits this gift of God, the gift of life. It's, it's grace. And God does not give the gift based on anything in the sinner. It's, it's irrespective of, of the recipient. Second, it's particular. Common grace is the form of God's grace that's given to all people without exception, believer and unbeliever. But special grace is not. It is given to all people without distinction, meaning male, female, rich, poor, slave, and free. It's given to all people without distinction, but not all people without exception. Not everyone receives special grace. God gives this grace according to the hidden will of his election, which we'll see in just a bit. But you think about like Exodus thirty-three nineteen. God says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. Matthew twenty fourteen. Christ affirms that many are called, but few are chosen. Few are actually chosen. In John 1, 13, where John reminds us that the new birth does not come about by the will of man or the will of flesh, but the will of God. It is up to God's will. And Jesus says in John 5, 21, that the son gives life to whom he wishes, right? It's, it's the grace gift of life. It's up to the son. He gives life to whomever he wishes. And this is particular. Third, this special grace is saving. We've kind of already said that, but just to give some verses to it, this is a saving grace. This is why scripture consistently says we're saved by grace, not merit, not works, not effort. We're not earning anything. It's, it's a gift. This is why there's no boasting. You can't praise yourself or thank yourself that you're saved. And it's all the glory to God because you're, you're recognizing, you're confessing that he, this, is, this was just a gift. That's how you treat someone who gave you a great gift. We'll turn later to Ephesians 2, but a classical passage you know well, repeating several times, for by grace you have been saved, not as a result of works that no one may boast. Philippians 1.6 reminds us that, that the God who began a good work in you will complete it. I mean, he gave you the gift. He will see to it that you take it all the way. He will finish the work of salvation he began in you. Now listen to a very clear verse, 2 Timothy 1.9. It says that God saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to works, but his own purpose and grace. Come back to that verse. It's just so clear and powerful that he saved us, not by works, but by his own purpose and his own grace. But at the very least, making pretty clear that we're saved by grace, by God's unmerited favor. Saved by grace. This grace is saving. You know, fourth characteristic of this special grace, it's abounding. It's, it's abundant. God's grace is more than sufficient for our needs. He has this overwhelming power. He can raise the spiritual dead to life. He can do that. 
His grace is sufficient. And it's, it can overcome our sin problem. This is why we can speak of his grace being greater than all of our sins. God's grace can both raise the spiritual dead to new life and forgive them of all their sins through Christ. This is why Paul says, speaking of his salvation in 1 Timothy 1.14, that the grace of our Lord was more than abundant. I mean, Paul himself, calling himself the chief of sinners, but God's grace was was more than abundant to save Paul. And similarly, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. He says, God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. For salvation and for sanctification, as we'll see uh, next week, God's grace abounds. And number five, God's grace or this special grace, it originates with God the Father. So we see it in Scripture originating with God the Father. He's the, the source of this special grace. Ephesians 1, 3, and 6. It says, blessed be the Father who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And it's all to the praise of the glory of His grace. That the source of this special grace was the Father. But number six, this special grace uh, comes through the work of Christ. The Son is involved as well. This saving grace is pictured as originating from the Father, but flowing through Christ before it gets to us. This is why in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4, you know, Paul can thank God for the grace which was given you in Christ Jesus. There's no grace outside of Christ Jesus. And likewise, Titus 3, 6 through 7, that this grace was poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Christ is like the conduit through which this grace comes to us. And indeed, in his incarnation, John 1, 14 and 17, that in Christ, grace and truth were realized. He came full of grace and truth to bring us God's grace and truth. Let's not leave out the Spirit, though. Lastly, a seventh characteristic of this special grace that it's applied by the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who is the specific means of bringing us to new life, breathing new life in us, raising us to new life. In the Old Testament, Zechariah 12.10, God looked forward to the day when he would pour out, he says, his spirit of grace upon his people. And we know that day has come. And Titus 3.5 reminds us that God has saved us by the regeneration, that the new life of the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Spirit are all involved in, in giving us the triune God's saving grace. But really just scratching the surface, you can already see how this, this concept of grace, God's grace, it's like the royal diadem of, of our salvation. Every dimension of salvation we're going to learn in this doctrine of salvation, this two-parter, it can all some way be traced back to grace. And as Christians, we champion grace because the Bible does. It just leaves no room for boasting. It causes us to give all the glory to God alone. But we're happy with that. We're just the blessed recipients of his special saving grace. Anytime we as Christians, those who have received some special grace, whenever we stumble upon that the teaching of God's grace in Scripture, 
You should always lead us to just pause, even for a moment, give thanks, remember you, me, here, what God did for us. We should not tire of hearing what the Lord did for us to redeem us, reflecting on that we were unworthy. If he just left us to ourselves, he would be perfectly just, still perfectly righteous, and we would just all be condemned to a miserable life here below and then a judgment hereafter. But knowing what the Lord did for us, even though we've just scratched the surface, we can see it's, it's his doing, it's not our doing. But uh, the abundant gift he's given to us uh, should overflow in, in thankfulness. So thank God in your heart for his grace. You think about a person who does not know the Lord like you once were. And what separates you from them? What makes you better? The answer really is nothing but God's grace. You're just one who has received his special saving grace. Not because you're better, you're more deserving, you're more righteous. Israel did not merit God's choice, neither do you. We're all undeserving sinners. That anyone is saved is a marvel of God's grace. That you in particular were saved is likewise a marvel of God's grace. You may not be able to give explanation as to why God chose you and maybe not the person next to you, but nonetheless, you can praise him for it, and that's what you must do. And just thank God for his grace gift. Now, mentioning God's choosing a lot, we're going to talk about a second subject here. We're, we're still under the first category, the plan of salvation. How did God plan for this salvation operation in a fallen world? We want to first introduce this concept of grace as our overarching term. And now get a little more particular with a, a second concept here of election. Secondly, election. And this really hits the nail on the head with God's plan of salvation. It goes back to, well, the beginning of the plan with election. This can be a somewhat controversial subject, but it doesn't need to be. Because what the Bible says about election is actually very clear and very straightforward. Some people have a problem with it because it, it it's very much reduces man. It magnifies God, but in so doing, it, it squashes man. Man likes to think of himself as the center of the universe. But we just want to figure out what the Bible says and, and leave it at that. So let, let's do that. Just try and study what the Bible says about this subject of election. I mean, that word is in Scripture all over the place. So what does it mean? Let's start with a few quick definitions here. First, you know, predestination. You've heard the term predestination. It's kind of parallel to the term providence. The term providence is used to speak of, of God's ordering world history according to his will. Predestination is the term for God ordering human salvation according to his will. Providence, how God controls world history according to his will. Predestination, how God orders human destiny according to his will. And many would include under predestination these two other terms, election and reprobation. Election, another definition, it can be defined as an act of God before the foundation of the world, whereby he chooses some people for salvation. It's an act of God before the foundation of the world, whereby he chooses some people for salvation. Not according to anything foreseen in them, just entirely according to his sovereign will. We're going to see that. Flip side of this is something called reprobation. And this is a decision of God before the foundation of the world to pass over some persons not intervening to save them, just allowing them to receive 
a just punishment for their sins, just leaving them in their sins, doing nothing basically and allowing them to suffer judgment, which they deserve. Let's just start off and establish the fact, the fact of election that God chooses some and then explore it more later. But the fact, like it's everywhere. I'm just going to throw a bunch of verses at you just so you can feel, and this is just a sampling. You can feel the weight, just the fact that God chooses some for salvation is, is all over. Matthew 13, 11, Christ said to you, it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. Some are chosen to receive this knowledge of the kingdom, some are not. Acts 13, 48, Paul preaches and it says, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. How many people believed? Well, as many as, been, as had been appointed to eternal life. It's just what it says. You have, of course, Romans 8, 28 and following that we know God causes all things to work together for good. for Those who are called according to his purpose. There's a sovereign God working out all things according to a plan. But it goes further. It's for those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. First Thessalonians one four, uh, First Thessalonians one four, I should say, Paul is giving thanks for these believers. He says, "Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, His choice of you." He's giving thanks for them, knowing that God has chosen you. First Thessalonians one four, Second Thessalonians two thirteen. It's even more straightforward. He says, "We should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because." God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the spirit and faith in the truth. It's a mouthful at the end there, but it doesn't get more straightforward. He's once again, thanking God for the Thessalonians. Paul likes to give thanks for the Thessalonians. And he says, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. Seems pretty clear. And the whole point in that verse, by the way, he's trying to encourage them because they were suffering persecution. And if the whole point was that they were responsible for their own salvation or that they chose God, that's not encouraging when you're suffering. It's only encouraging if, if God chose you and he's going to hang on to you. And that's the point Paul was making there. Like, God started your salvation. He's going to finish it. Be encouraged even though you're suffering. Here's a couple more. 2 Timothy 1.9. That same verse we, we said earlier says that God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. We didn't read the second half before, but that this, the purpose and grace and calling of God were granted to us from eternity past. This is a plan God has had from the beginning. And that includes who will receive special grace. And then you have a verse, Revelation 13, 8. This is speaking of in the future tribulation, who's going to worship this antichrist figure and who's not. And listen to who's not. It says, all who dwell on the earth will worship him. But it says, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who has been slain. Apparently, there's a book, and it's got some names in it. And those are the names of, of those who have been given to the Lamb, the redeemed, 
And they will not worship the Antichrist. They are set apart. And again, this is just a small sampling of verses, but the fact that God chose some to receive his gift of salvation when none deserved it, none need to receive it, he chose to give it to some. Uh, that fact is throughout all scripture. One more passage, you, you can even turn here. Ephesians 1, I know we're, we're going fast, we're rattling through, but the highest peak of this doctrine is found in Ephesians 1. It's just a, a waterfall of election terminology that Paul just dumps in the introduction to Ephesians. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, I can read it all, but I'll highlight a few things. He says in Ephesians 1, 3 and 4, you know, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Look at verse 11. And also we obtain an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose. who works all things after the counsel of his will. It goes on. There's more. You study this passage. You see the source of election, the fact of election that he chose us. He predestined us. You see the time of election from before the foundation of the world. You see the basis of election. In verse 4, it's God's love. Verse 5, it's just God's will. Verse 6, it's God's favor. You don't see anything here that, that has to do with our will, our choosing. It's all just, this is what God was doing. It's what he's up to. His will, his plan, his purposes, his kindness, his love, his mercy. We just receive it. Good for us, but, but great for God. To, glory to God for, for his election. There's more. We can't, we're not going to do a deep dive in Ephesians 1. That's not our intention. Just wanted to show you that the fact of election predestination. It's, it's all over scripture. And truth be told, it's so clear in scripture that all Christians believe in election. And it might come as a surprise to you. Maybe you've been around the church long enough. You know that you know, there's some Christians who they call themselves Calvinists and some Christians call themselves Arminians. And it's just, it's just the Calvinists who believe in election, right? Like the other guys don't. That's actually not true. That both Calvinists and Arminians believe in election. That all Christians, at least should, believe in election. It's, it's everywhere. Calvinists and Arminians believe that God chooses some, not all, for salvation. And so what's, what's the difference between these two systems of theology understanding the word? It all comes down to how God makes this choice. That's the real difference. Let's real quick explore that, just to give you some exposure. And it boils down to what's called conditional Election versus unconditional election. They both believe in election, that God's choosing some but not all. How does he make the choice? Well, the, the Arminian view is termed conditional election. They believe God elects people. He chooses people based on his foreknowledge of their faith. 
And so it works like this, that before the foundation of the world, before God creates, he uses his foreknowledge to look forward through the corridors of time, and he sees who will choose to believe in him of their own free will. Who chooses him? And so he then elects them or chooses them in response. God is choosing those who have chosen him of their own free will. This is called conditional election because his choice is conditioned on man's choice. Man has believed of his own free will. The Calvinist view is termed unconditional election, that God's choice has no conditions on it. It's not conditioned on anything in us. There's no foreseen faith. There's no merit, no goodness. There's nothing. It's just based on his will, that the secret counsel of his will alone, and hence unconditional. You think about conditional election, and the main problem with it is just not taught in Scripture. Like, literally, there's, you're not going to find a single verse uh, saying or suggesting that God was looking, he based his choice by looking forward through time to find out who would believe in him. That, that's a construct created by man, that there's not a Bible verse to attach to that. And it's really a ridiculous notion because it renders God's choice, his choosing as, as null and void and meaningless. We just looked at all those verses talking about how God chooses you. And if this conditional election is true, that means that's all doublespeak. That God's not actually choosing anyone. We're the choosing. God's not really choosing anyone, uh, just looking who chose him first. It, it's meaningless. This idea of conditional election was invented by man, just it had a purpose, is to try and get God off the hook. Because if it's really up to God who will be saved, if that's actually true, we know that not everyone is saved. And so some see this moral dilemma, like, well, why didn't God just choose to save everybody? We know not everyone's saved. So since he didn't choose to save everyone, that kind of makes God look bad, right? It makes him look a little unloving. And so Arminians wanted to rescue God from this criticism. We don't want God to look unloving that he didn't choose everybody. And so this idea where, no, it's really actually, it's all about us choosing God. That gets God off the hook for sending people to hell because they weren't chosen. But you have to think it through a little bit. And just just play with it. Imagine this was true. Imagine before creation, God is looking down the corridors of time, uh, seeing who will believe in him of their own free will. And let's just pretend that it's possible for man to choose God of his own free will. Okay, what would God see in that vision of the future? He would see this, this world that he has made. He would see in this world you know, some people choosing to believe in him, but the vast majority choosing not to believe in him. Billions and billions of people choose not to believe in him and therefore go to hell forever. And so if that's the case, or he sees this world where so much evil and suffering and injustice have resulted and, and countless billions will perish, why did God still create this world? Right? He didn't have to. He had the power to create any universe he wanted to. Why not create a universe where he foresaw, you know, like only a million people would perish? Or how about he, he creates a universe where he foresaw zero people would perish, that everyone just chose him of their own free will. Why didn't he create that world? He could have. But here's the fact, according to their view, that the fact is God still knew when he made this world that you know, the vast majority would not believe, not be saved. And yet he still chose to create this universe when he didn't have to. That means he's just as accountable for what happens. 
He's just as responsible as if he had simply elected some to life and others to be passed over. This whole view of foreknowledge does not make God any, uh, supposedly any more loving, and it doesn't get God, get God off any hooks. But according to the Calvinists, though, and really just scripture, God does not need us to get him off of any hooks. He's fine being on your little artificial hook. That his character of being supremely loving is, is without question. I mean, in scripture, you can never contend with the love of God. By the very fact that any are elected, any are saved, that he sent his son to die for undeserving sinners, you can't question any bit of God's love. He's free to show grace and mercy on whom he wants. It's not a question of that. Really, we can be thankful that the Arminian view of election is not true, because if it was, it would actually result in zero people getting saved. Again, you have to go back to our studies on man and sin. But scripture affirms that man in his heart and his nature is fallen and corrupt, spiritually dead, depraved. And his will is not actually free. His will is bound by sin and by Satan. Just go back and get our previous study on the doctrines of man and sin. We looked at all those verses. And so apart from God's special intervention, man would never choose God of his own free will. He won't and he can't. Unless God intervenes, he won't and he can't. And so thankfully though, God does intervene, but not universally. He's chosen to send and give a special, sovereign, effectual, irresistible, saving grace to the elect, a group he's chosen before the foundation of the world. We don't know who these people are. God does. The scripture tells us he has chosen some. And why did he do it then? What, what was the, the reason for his choice? We've already seen it. We'll see it again. But the Bible overwhelmingly and consistently portrays God as basing his electing choice on one thing, just his sovereign will. I mean, that's it. His, his will, like the, the hidden counsel of his sovereign will. And over and over again, it, it shows God choosing people based on his will and his purpose alone. And there's some very strong verses that make this crystal clear. You just can't contend with it. We've already seen them. Let's see a few more. Here, Romans 9 is like the chapter. I mean, you read the whole thing, but Romans 9, this is Paul unleashes this. Verses 10 through 16 in particular make a strong point. He uses the example of Jacob and Esau. And Paul establishes God's unconditional election of Jacob over Esau. These two brothers, they're twins. But before they were even born, it had nothing to do with them. They weren't even born yet. But it says entirely up to God's will. Jacob was chosen, Esau was not. It's unconditional choice, unconditional election. It says in Romans 9, 11, it says, For though the twins were not yet born, they had not done anything good or bad. They hadn't done anything. But it says, so that God's purpose according to his choice, would stand. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Jacob was chosen. He says later, it doesn't depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on the God who has mercy. In other words, it's not up to your will. It's up to God's will. It's just Romans 9. And it goes on. Later, you also find Romans 11, 5 through 6. Talking about Israel 
and, and God's people. He says, in the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. How is there a remnant? It's all according to God's gracious choice. He says, though, but if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. It's just it's up to his grace, his grace gift, his gracious choosing. There's nothing we're doing to earn or merit or choose in return. We uh, looked at Ephesians 1, 5 earlier. If you're still in Ephesians 1, I mean, look at Ephesians 1, 5 and 11, how crystal clear they are that God predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to what? According to our foreseen faith, our foreseen choice, our will? No, he predestined us according to the kind intention of his will. Beyond that, it's mystery, but that part is clear. It's according to the kind intention of his will. In verse 11, also we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Let me give you a few more. In 1 Corinthians 1, 30 through 31, and Paul's telling them, telling them to consider their salvation, their calling. And he says, by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness, sanctification, redemption. So that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boasts in the Lord. It's by his doing that you're in Christ. Why are you in Christ? You did choose to believe. Yes, and you must but you would not be able to apart from his doing. One more time, let's read that verse, 2 Timothy 1.9. I mean, it's just, we use that a lot because it's so clear. 2 Timothy 1.9, that God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which has granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. James 1.18, it says, in the exercise of God's will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we'd be a first fruits among his creatures. That's talking about salvation, that God brought us forth in the exercise of his will, not our will, his will. John 15, 16, Jesus just told his disciples, he reminded them, you did not choose me, I chose you. That's pretty clear. John 5, 21, again, the son gives life to whom he wishes. It's up to the son's will, not your will. John 6, 44 and 65, Christ said, no one can come to the Father unless it's been granted. Or he said, no one can come to me unless it's been granted by the Father. You know, again, because of depravity, you don't have the ability to freely go to Christ. Unless God has granted it, you can't do it. Your limited ability like we established. But God will draw some. He will save some by his grace and assuring their free choice to come to him by this sovereign grace. And then once again, John 1, 12 and 13. That's a verse that just directly addresses the question. Now, how are people enrolled in God's family, in his kingdom? And that's the question we're asking. Like, how are people placed into God's family? Is it by God's will or man's will? And this verse answers as directly as you can. He says, it's not by blood, it's not by the will of the flesh, not by the will of man, but of God. Meaning, it's not up to your lineage, 
It's not by natural means. It's not by your choice. It's just up to God's will. That's how you're placed in his family. Before the foundation of the world, how did God make his choice of electing some people to salvation? Had nothing to do with us. Nothing to do with his foreseen faith in, in us. It just was entirely according to his sovereign, perfect, hidden will. This is just simply what scripture teaches. It's an overwhelming testimony of unconditional election. Now, as clear as the Bible is about it, people still object to it. Because, you know, emotionally, it offends man. It offends man's sensibilities. Like, we, again, like to think we're in control. How could God disregard our, our free will? But again, the Apostle Paul anticipated and dealt with the two main objections to this teaching in Romans 9. Again, we're just summarizing for the sake of time. But the first objection is that, you know, election is unjust. This seems unjust. He deals with that in Romans 9, 14 through 18. You know, they might say God is unjust because he doesn't save everyone. It doesn't seem just. But he, Paul argues that you're mixing terms. The fact of election has nothing to do with justice. It's all about mercy and grace. You don't want justice. If God were just being perfectly just, everyone would go to hell. And that's, that's, that's fair and that's just. That's giving people what they deserve. That's justice. God is free, though, to show mercy on whomever he wants. That's up to his mercy, and he's free to do that. It has nothing to do with his justice. And by the way, the people who go free, no one actually goes free. Jesus died for them. Justice is still served. God is free to show mercy, though, as he sees fit. Some will then say, well, election seems unfair. It's unjust. It's unfair. And Paul deals with that in Romans 9, 19 through 24. They may say God is unfair to hold the non-elect responsible for their rejection of God. How can he blame them for not believing they were never chosen? But you have to remember, sovereign election is never taught in Scripture to negate man's responsibility and man's accountability for believing. These truths are not either or. They're side by side in Scripture. That God is fully sovereign in salvation, but man is fully responsible in salvation as well. You are accountable to repent and believe. And if you don't, you're judged. And Scripture every time presents the, the same reason for man's judgment. And it's never because like, oh, looks like you weren't elect. I guess you're judged. No, it's always you sinned, you refuse to believe, you will be judged. Man is always given the blame for unbelief. And you have to remember that, that God's uh, passing over some. It's not uh, preventing them uh, well, I should say, it's, he's, he's passing over with reprobation. He's not doing them any wrong. He's simply leaving them in the state which they brought on themselves through depravity, through original sin, like we learned a couple weeks ago. Man is just left to be accountable for his own choices. God does no wrong in doing that. But as for God, he's, he's free to do whatever he wants with his creation, to save some, to save none, save one person. He's free to do what he wants. In, at the end of the day, you can't argue back with your creator about his free choice. Because at the end of the day, God has the free will. And he will do as he sees fit. He's God. He sits in the heavens. He does as he pleases. But you have to keep in mind, though, as you think about the doctrine of election, that it's given in Scripture and always presented in Scripture for believers. It's not given 
to unbelievers in the sense that it's not going to make much sense to them, but it's always ministered to believers for the sake of encouragement and comfort. This is not a doctrine we're just trying to fill our heads with and win a debate. This doctrine is meant for some serious comfort and encouragement in a hard Christian life. And there's believers who struggle with suffering, sickness, persecution. They can be encouraged that you know, God has chosen them and the corollary, he will keep them. You know, so many of the verses we just studied on election, you, you go further, they come in a context of encouraging Christians who are suffering and being persecuted. But these biblical authors are helping Christians recall how their salvation came to them, namely by God's doing. Like he gave this to you. It's his unconditional choice. And as we mentioned earlier, you can be assured God finishes what he starts. Philippians 1, 6. Now, he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And that, that assurance that God will preserve us is meant to uh, spur us on to persevere in the faith. God has chosen you. He'll hang on to you. I mean, isn't that Romans 8? You have the golden chain of his salvation from predestination to glorification. He, he, he chose you in the past. He's going to see you through to the future. And it goes on to affirm nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We're meant to derive great encouragement and comfort from election. That spurs us on to just to keep going, to keep going in the faith. Another major application to election is just worship. These truths, when they're presented in Scripture, especially by the Apostle Paul, he often interjects, or I should say interrupts himself and just throws in a word of praise. He can't help himself. Ephesians 1, Ephesians 3, Romans 9, Romans 11. It's just a cause of thanksgiving and adoration. Because election displays God's power, his love, his, his salvation. Back in Ephesians 1, you see that threefold refrain. That God predestined us, he chose us, he called us. And then it says three times, to the praise of the glory of his grace. To the praise of the glory of his grace, over and over. And anytime we recall God's gracious choice of us, we should just thank God and praise God for, for his choice. To the praise of the glory of his grace. And then finally, a last little note of application here. The doctrine of election should motivate believers to greater evangelism and prayer. Some wrongly think the opposite, that you know, if this election stuff is all true, like, doesn't that mean evangelism is worthless and prayer is pointless? Like, hey, if God's going to save someone, he's going to save them. Why bother evangelizing? Why bother praying? This is a huge misunderstanding. You have to remember, God is sovereign over the ends. He's also sovereign over the means. And he's chosen to use us as the means of working out his plan of salvation. So we should get to work. And you have to remember, it's, it's the fact of election that actually makes prayer and evangelism possible. You have to consider the, the alternative. If God did not elect some to salvation, and so if it's up to, up to us to save someone, that's when evangelism is truly futile. No one will be saved. No one will believe. It's up to our power. No one's getting saved. But the fact that God has elected some means our evangelism will succeed. It's not up to us. We're not in control. We're the farmer who just scatters the seed in the field and then goes to bed. How it grows, he does not know. 
the parable that Christ taught in Mark. But our job, the mission God has given to us in his sovereignty is, is to, he gives us the privilege of participating and scattering the seed. He will call to life as he sees fit. And we get the blessing of participating, but the, the knowledge that, that God has a people in this city should spur us on. That's what Paul, God told Paul in Corinth. He's going to move on, and, and God told him, I have many people in this city. And Paul stayed there for a year and a, uh, one and a half years, uh, knowing God's got someone here. I'm going to labor on. Just like 2 Timothy 2.10 says, Paul once again says, For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. We know God has his people out there. The remnant is out there. We can't see them, so we're just going to blanket the earth with the gospel and with prayer, trusting God to do his part. He's given us a part. We just need to be faithful, share the gospel to everyone, and trust God to do the rest. Well, time is moving. We better move on because I wanted to cover one more category here, uh, the provision of salvation. Let's switch gears a little bit. We're going to press on. This won't be as long, but we just covered first category in the doctrine of salvation, the plan of salvation. This, this thing is planned. God is unfolding a plan. You move forward, you get to the point of a provision. God has to make some provision for us to be saved. And that provision is the atonement. And so there's really just one, one concept here where we're going to talk about the provision of salvation. It's the atonement. The atonement is God's provision for us to be saved. We can't be saved apart from this provision, this atonement. And the atonement itself centers on the death of Christ. His death is the basis for our life. So we want to learn a little bit about that. So really here, when we talk about the provision of salvation, we're going to study now the atonement, get introduced to it. The atonement can simply be defined as the work Christ accomplished on the cross to achieve our salvation. The work Christ accomplished on the cross to achieve our salvation. And we haven't defined justification yet. That's next week. But the atonement is the basis of God justifying sinners. And this is a pretty broad definition. Let's narrow it down. Let's start with the nature of Christ's atonement. And the key term here is penal substitution. Penal substitution. Christ's death on the cross can be referred to as a, a penal substitution. Penal meaning a penalty. He bore the penalty for sin. It was punitive and substitutionary that he bore the penalty for us. It wasn't his penalty. He was taking the penalty for us. It was a penal substitutionary atonement. Sin is a violation of God's law and it results in, in a just penalty of death. And on the cross, Jesus took our rightful place, and he paid the penalty we should have paid. And so he satisfied the just demands of God's law. As a substitute for sinners, their sin is imputed or given to Jesus that he met the righteous demands of, of God on the cross. Basic point is he, he bore our sins. Isaiah 53, 4-6, a classic passage in the Old Testament that really emphasizes that the penal substitutionary atonement the Messiah would provide. You know, surely our griefs he himself bore. Our sorrows 
he carried. We ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. By his scourging, we are healed. It's over and over. It shows that it was our sin, our iniquity, but it was all placed on him, given to him, and he paid for it. New Testament says the same thing. 2 Corinthians 5.21, that God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Likewise, 1 Peter 2.24, that, that Christ himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. He wasn't dying for his own sins. He was bearing our sins on the cross. And also 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. He was the just one, the righteous one. We were the unjust ones, the unrighteous. But in his death, he was paying for us. He was doing it for us, the just for the unjust, that we might be brought to God. He accomplished this atonement through his death. So let's, a quick word on the death of Christ. He, he made atonement through his death. What, what exactly happened in his death? There are several dimensions to the actual death of Christ on the cross. There's, there's a physical dimension. He was physically suffering. It was incredibly painful, the death he went through. But his physical death, necessary, but not the primary dimension. Really, a, a spiritual death, a, a spiritual suffering was taking place on the cross that achieved our atonement. The Romans crucified tens of thousands of people. Someone dying on the cross does not by itself make atonement. There's a spiritual transaction also taking place through this death that made atonement. Jesus did not actually sin, but God reckoned or imputed all of our sin onto him, and then he paid that price. And just try and think about that. When you sin, especially a larger sin, you're going to feel a measure of guilt and anguish and sorrow and remorse, and rightly so. Just imagine, though, the crushing effect on Christ's soul of having all of our sins placed on him as if they were now his. What would that do to you? What would that feel like or be like? We, can, we can't fathom other than to say it was soul-crushing. And you add to that the wrath of God that was then poured out on him because of those sins. Our sins and guilt were imputed to Christ. And so he then bore the penalty of all that guilt and sin, which is just the wrath of God. If, if we were required to pay for our own sins, it would take us an eternity to bear that wrath, God's holy justice rendered towards sin. But being fully God, Jesus could do this in a finite time on the cross. He didn't have to suffer eternally, but he did suffer completely. He, he drank the whole cup. And somehow he was able to drink the whole cup of wrath on the cross for us. Jesus endured all of God's wrath. And so now there's nothing left. His atonement uh, contrasts Old Testament uh, animal sacrifices. Christ's atonement was complete. He paid it all. There's nothing left for us to contribute, which is why he said on the cross, it is finished. Our sin debt has been paid in full. There's nothing left for us to pay or earn or do. Every ounce of our sin and guilt was, was canceled. The debt was paid in full on the cross. 
We should most definitely thank God for that. There's nothing more left for us to do or pay back or earn. It's just a free gift. And finish our time here with this concept of atonement. Let's round it out with three related terms, three uh, related biblical concepts. That as you're studying doctrine, you should know. Propitiation, redemption, and reconciliation. These will be quick. And first, propitiation. And this is talking about Christ's work in a Godward sense. That propitiation is the, the satisfaction or the appeasement of God's wrath. Again, God's wrath is his holy and right response to sin. And our sin stores up God's wrath like a dam holding back a, a mighty river. And it's going to be unleashed. But Jesus on the cross, he, he swallowed it all up. He satisfied God's wrath toward us. That's propitiation. In the Old Testament, God made animal sacrifices a, a provisionary way to set aside, to temporarily cover his wrath. But Jesus came along and actually paid it all, took it all, put it away. Romans 3.25 attests that, that God uh, displayed, uh, speaking of Christ, that God displayed publicly him as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate God's righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. In Christ, who's actually now paying for all of our sins. Hebrews 2.17 says that Christ had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. First John 4.10 adds that, that Jesus is that propitiation, that God sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. As a high priest, he administered the sacrifice, and as the Lamb of God, he was the sacrifice. He made a complete propitiation for our sins. The second term here is redemption. Now, redemption relates to Christ's work in a manward sense. Because after the fall, we're enslaved to sin. But on the cross, Jesus is pictured as redeeming us or ransoming us, which is freeing us from sin, from sin's domain. And the Greek word underlying ransom and redemption, it pictures redeeming a slave from the marketplace, freeing a slave. And that's what the Lord did to us in this sense. He, he freed us from bondage to sin on the cross. We're still slaves because he enslaved us to himself. That's a righteous and glor- glorious thing. He made us his. We belong to him. But in that slavery, there's freedom. The point is that we're redeemed from sin, from suffering, from death. And the price of redemption, you got to pay a price to redeem something. And the price was his own blood. He, he died. He had to die to redeem us. Mark 10, 45 says, even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life. He had to give his life as a ransom for many. First Corinthians 16 or six twenty says, you've been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God with your body. And Revelation 5, 9 says in, in heaven, they're singing a song and they're saying, worthy are you to Christ, and it says, to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. 
And Christ uh, redeemed us. He purchased us. He bought us with his blood. In so doing, he reconciled us. And lastly, we can cover reconciliation. These are all just facets of the one diamond of the atonement, different ways of looking at it. Reconciliation refers to God's work in both a manward and a Godward sense. Our sin separates us from God. It's a barrier. It's a chasm we can't get through. We're separated from our maker. We've fallen out of fellowship with God. That's all our fault. But on the cross, Jesus removed the barrier of sin. He put a bridge over the chasm and he enabled these two parties to be reconciled in fellowship. Of course, man, it was all our fault. We are the ones who moved out of fellowship with God, but Christ in redeeming us, he was bringing us back to the Father, such that we're no longer separated from God in our sin. That is reconciliation. Romans 5.10, even while we were enemies, it says we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. And much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And then 2 Corinthians 5.18-19 through 19, it says, all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And he's given us a ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he's committed to us the word of reconciliation. You know, in Christ, we're spared from wrath. We're freed from sin. We're reconciled to God. This is good news. And this is just the beginning of the doctrine of salvation. But already there's, there's a lot of good news of what God did for us. It started with grace. We'll finish here with, with grace and just thanking God for his grace. This is the plan of salvation, the provision of salvation. Next time we'll cover the application, the continuation, and the completion of salvation. But as I said before, just to finish, you know, any time these truths intersect our mind, it should stir us up should renew our, our affection, our praise, our thanksgiving of what God has done for us. We sing amazing grace, and that should not grow dull in our minds. We should each day thank God for his grace, and that, that has so many effects in our lives. This knowledge of salvation should, for example, spur us on to holy living. We know what we've been saved from, that we've been bought with a price. We, we should want to glorify God with our bodies, for example. We no longer live in the domain of darkness. We've been redeemed. And so we should live to God's glory. This knowledge of salvation should also lead us to tell others about it. Evangelism. We've been given the ministry of reconciliation. We've received this good news by grace. All we can do is just tell others. That's what we're, we're called to do. Let's at least tell others about it. Share the good news that, that others might believe as God wills. And then this knowledge of salvation should build assurance that you need no longer live in fear, that we don't have to fear his wrath. He's put away all of our sins. There's nothing left for us to add. The Christian life is not about penance or trying to pay God back, but we can find a true rest and a peace in this sovereign salvation. You're meant to find assurance in this gift that is, cannot be revoked. God never revokes his gift of salvation. But, you know, still knowing he's made us responsible, this assurance in turn urges us to excel still more, to persevere in the faith, to stand firm. 
And that's what we need to do. Let's not let God's amazing grace turn into a license to sin or lazy Christian living, but let it just spur us on to a holy and a steadfast Christian life. Much to be thankful for, and we should live like it. Let's thank God now for his grace as we finish our time. And God the Father, we do want to do that now and just praise you, thank you, and just take a second to, to stop. And as we recall this evening, the marvel of your grace to just to thank you. It's one thing to, to say, thank you, Lord. Let us also show it with our lives. Let us live thankfully, not just with our lips, but with our lives, with our hands, our feet, with our bodies. May we uh, show our thankfulness, not to pay back. We, we thank you, Lord, that the work was finished. There's nothing we can do to pay back, to re- uh, return the favor. But at, as, just as the overflow of hearts that have been made alive, that have received grace and been transformed, May this thankfulness overflow into a zeal for you, a love for you, for your word, your will, your ways. And may, we, may it thrill us to tell other people about it. Help us to evangelize. Help us to uh, walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Or people saved by grace, and just may we show it. What we do, thank you. We praise you. Everything we've learned this evening, it's all to the praise of the glory of your grace. And may we show that here and hereafter. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.